This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the controversy over Peace Arch Hospital being used for a movie set. Really? They, they got a wing of Peace Arch Hospital? They're shooting a film there? This is at the same time we got, we got patients crowded into hallways. We got Surrey Memorial Hospital renting out a motel for patients to ease overcrowding. They're shooting a movie? At Peace Arch, got Dr. Kevin McLeod standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this report. Global News reporter Elisa Thibault. An unusual sight in a hospital parking lot. Trailers and generators for a film crew. Taking over a section of Peace Arch Hospital for a two-day shoot this week. The optics raising some questions. I don't know if their priorities are in the right spot. Like Maybe they need to focus on the medical system rather than filming movies and sparking outrage from the BC opposition. Taxpayers are paying to be here, right? They're the citizens here. They're the ones that should be getting service in that hospital, not the not not film crews. Right, let's discuss this with my guest now, Dr. Kevin McLeod, Lionsgate Hospital. I'm always grateful for his time. Kevin, thank you for coming on today. Mike, thanks for having me. Two things. I would love to figure out how we get drones coming to the hospital, dropping off coffee. Um, and <laughs> um, I don't work at Peace Arch, so you know I work I work in Vancouver Coastal Health. But when I when I saw that story, I mean, you could see the optics of it look bad, sure. Um, for sure. But um, but it, you know, part of me thinks that's kind of easy politics, right? I mean, if the wing is not being used, you know, you're going to bring in some other revenue. Fine. The, the bigger question is why why do we have empty physical space and and the really big reason for that is that we don't have staffing to fill that space you know many of your listeners might be sitting on a waiting list for a a ct scan or or some surgical procedure you know you'd be surprised it's not that we don't have enough scanners sometimes that's the case but we don't have technologists to run them you know there, there are hundreds of empty positions and the, the people that were graduating in these various different programs for, for allied health and technologists are, are not even keeping up with the retirements. Well, how, how are we supposed to shrink this down? How are we supposed to staff a wing of a hospital if we're, if we're not producing enough people based on an aging population and, and just population growth? Well, if that's true, though, then why is Surrey Memorial leasing a motel to put patients into a motel? Instead of in the hospital, because the hospital is so crowded. I mean, couldn't they move them over to this uh, this empty wing at Peace Arch? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, there's there's mm-hmm. definitely some questions there that that I don't know the answer to. Sometimes yeah. patients that are are sent out to a hotel or, you know, we will. And I don't know if this is the case in in Surrey because I don't work there. But it sometimes patients who are designated uh, an alternative level of care. So it might be somebody who. You know, doesn't necessarily need to be in hospital anymore, but is waiting for a long-term care bed. So, 
you know, the nursing ratio might be quite different. You know, a nurse might look after a lot more patients in that setting than somebody who's acutely unwell with a pneumonia or heart attack or something like that. So my, my suspicion is the patients who are moved to some other setting like that or, you know, are waiting to get somewhere else where, again, you run into the yeah. same capacity question. Why don't we have enough long-term care beds in, in large part because we don't have enough long-term care aides to staff those beds? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is the problem: is we've got the we got the staffing shortage for sure. Speaking of Doctor Kevin McLeod, talking about Peace Arch Hospital, part of it being used to shoot a movie uh, right now, raising controversy. Now, in fairness to Fraser Health Authority, they say that this part of Peace Arch Hospital was not being used. It was basically empty. They say it was being prepared for a renovation, and they say that allowing a movie a movie crew to go in there and shoot a movie for a few days is actually a, a better use. It would, otherwise, you're sitting in empty anyway. So why not make some money off of it and put the money into the healthcare system? Let's have a listen to this. This is Global News. Again, Global News reporter Elisa Tebow did a really good job in this story. Listen to this. Fraser Health maintains hospital operations were not impacted, saying the filming took place in a very small, closed, non-active unit currently being prepared for upcoming renovations. We also spoke with a staff member to see if there were any concerns from those working here. They told us the only issue was a bit of congestion in the parking lot. Yeah. Now, if the staff of that hospital had been raising hell over this and saying that this was causing a major operational problem, well, okay. Like, I think we've got a, we got a problem here. But even if even the staff there, or at least the staff that spoke to Global News here, are saying that, well, you know what, it's not really causing that much of a problem. I mean, Kevin, do you see an issue here? I'll be honest, Mike, I don't really. I mean, I think, again, it it, it is probably good for politics to, to yeah. jump up and down on this. But but really, like what what the opposition should be doing, in my opinion, is is saying, hey, wait a minute, government. Like, why why don't you have... The Minister of Health, Minister of Education, like, you know, the, the, the highest level people in a room and look at the critical staffing shortages like x-ray technologists and say, let's figure out how the hell we're going to fix this today. You know, it's not going to solve the shortage right away. But if we if we're short 300 people and we're graduating 90 people, you know, it doesn't take a lot of expertise to realize that's a problem. And then get on the phone with places like BCIT and say, what do we need to do to ramp these numbers up, to train more people, to keep up with population growth, not in 10 years or eight years, but, you know, this coming July, how do we think outside of the box? You know, there, there are lots of people that are interested in becoming a, a radiology technologist, right? Yeah. But they can't because, you know, they may be a single parent. They may be struggling to pay their rent. They can't take a bunch of time off and move in from some small community to live in Vancouver at exorbitant costs in order to do the training, right? Like maybe they need to work in the daytime and we need to have some nighttime options for training. Maybe we have to look at the whole training program and there's more hands-on training in hospitals to help. You know, similar with with residencies, you, you know, taxpayers are paying physicians more and more money. And I, I would say this, like paying me more money isn't going to make your care better, Sure, it's good for me, but it doesn't make your care better or faster. I'm working flat out. I can't work more. You know, I worked all weekend up most of the nights and days and, and now in an office all day, right? Like it, you can't squeeze more out of, of individual people. You need more people. Well, you know, there's all these kids abroad that are Canadian who want to come back to Canada and work. They need a residency spot. 
you know, they need to finish off their training. That's not an expensive thing. Like why, why not increase those numbers? And, and I'm not asking for something ridiculous, you know, bump up the numbers 10% a year for the next four years. You know, there's, there's ways we could do this that don't have to be expensive, but actually could show the public that there's some movement on, on some of these think, critical staffing shortages. Do you think that the government should have seen this coming? Like right now we're dealing with basically a demographic time bomb that everyone's been predicting for a long time. Like we've got an older, we got an aging population. And of course, as people get older, they get sicker and there are more demands on the system. I mean, this seems to be driving the demand. We've got uh, a shortage of staff, as you have described. And do you think the government should have seen that coming? Like they should have done better planning, anticipating this? Well, I think so, but I I don't think it's, it's just on the current government. It's on, you know, multiple governments right across the country and right around the world, right? So, you know, this isn't unique to British Columbia, but we've sure done a a poor job planning. Um, I'm all for immigration, but we're having a lot more people come here and then we don't recognize their credentials. Well, that's a problem. You can't have 500,000 people come and a bunch of them are nurses and doctors, but not recognize their credentials because it just exacerbates the problem. So there's lots of things that we, we need to do, but the, to, to me, it seems like we're all recognizing the problem, but we're not, we're not advancing the solutions forward. And it, there just doesn't seem to be as much urgency as I think we need to advance those solutions for. I, I right. can tell you, there's people lined up down hallways now, and that that's really not okay for patients. And on large part, that's because we don't have enough people. Would you say that, what would you say about the level of stress and burnout right now in the system? Like you just mentioned that you just finished an all night, an all night shift. And now did you say you got, you got to work all day today now? I thought you just worked all night. You still got to work today? Yeah, well, so, you know, and I'm not complaining. It's it's what I signed up for. But, you know, I worked all day Friday, all night Friday. I worked most of Saturday, slept Saturday night, worked all day Sunday, most of Sunday night. And now I'm going to work all day today. Um, You know, got to sleep around three o'clock last night because just a lot of things going on. Back in the hospital at five thirty, six o'clock. You know, it's it's very, very busy. And it's not yeah. sustainable. And, you know, so I keep pushing to say we need physician assistance. We need more people because ultimately what happens, and I, you know, I think I have a, a few more years in me, but, you know, at some point you, you hit a burnout part or you end up just saying, look, I can't do it anymore. And, and more and more people are doing that and then completely changing their scope of practicing. Look, I don't, I don't want to be in the hospital or I'm going to go do some private stuff or, you know, I'm going to go inject yeah. Botox or something else which society doesn't need so much of, and, and then you exacerbate the problem even more, right? And, yeah. and um, that's where it's so critical that we figure out this staffing stuff, not, you know, 10 years from now. Yes, there's great plans to expand a medical school and build a new medical school, but it's really going slowly. And, and yeah. I can appreciate that, but it, there needs to be more urgency on the part of, of government and decision okay. makers. Kevin, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Mike, thank you. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. 
Let's talk about contraband being smuggled into BC prisons. This is happening on a daily basis now. Delivery by drone. This sounds like it's out of control. The drones fly over the prison walls. They can make their deliveries into the jails. Drugs, cell phones, weapons. Got John Randall standing by to discuss. First, let's have a listen to this report. Global News reporter Darian Matassafung. So how does it work? A drone will be launched a short distance away flies over the razor wire fences, it descends and drops drugs, weapons, and cell phones right into the outstretched hands of inmates, sometimes through prison cell windows. My drone can literally fly up like almost like an Amazon delivery right within feet of the window. Drugs, weapons, and cell phones are flooding into BC institutions, which means more violence, gang influence, and overdoses. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, John Randall. John is the Pacific Region President, Union of Canadian Correctional Officers. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. John, thank you for coming on today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it a lot. Okay, let's talk about this. This sounds like this is out of control now. Like, is this happening every day? It's, I would say it's beyond out of control and, and definitely happening every day. Um, as a matter of fact, over the last seven-day period, we've had probably over 12 reported drone drops and sightings just over Abbotsford prisons alone. <laughs> okay, Abbotsford, that's like a hot spot for the drone deliveries. What's going on there? Well, it just seems to be a hot spot right now, and, and it's where uh, our officers are really being diligent. And so I think that we're catching a lot of them and we're noticing a lot of them. So yeah. uh, I guess that's the uptick in, in, in reports anyways. Okay, what kind of stuff is coming into the into the jails? Like what what are these drones delivering? Uh, well, the normal drugs, I, I, I use normal as in it shouldn't be normal, but drugs, weapons, yeah. cell phones. Uh, we're seeing things like uh, like uh, hacksaw blades coming in so that they can make weapons on the inside. We're seeing SD cards coming in. I'm assuming those are for the cell phones. Um, all sorts of contraband like that. But the most dangerous would be the drugs, weapons, and cell phones for sure. Okay, let's talk about drugs here first, John. So tell me about that. Like. Are these drug? Is this triggering more drug use and drug overdoses in the prisons? Oh, for sure, because of the pure quantity they're able to get in. It's it's flooding the institutions with drugs and and more scary fentanyl, um, which then contributes to obviously a ton of overdoses. We've had nothing but problems in the last couple of months with overdoses uh, across the region, and and it's just going to continue to grow. Yeah, and how do your guys handle that? Like, if there's an overdose in a jail, like, are, are prison guards trained to deal with that, or do you have to call 911? Like, how does that work? A little bit of both. Like, as first responders, we deliver first aid care immediately. So Narcan, CPR, everything we can initially do to triage them. We do have yeah. to call 911, obviously, and, and bring in paramedics and have them uh, deal with the inmates as well, though, because uh, we can only do so much. Yeah. Okay, cell phones. Now, this is another interesting one. Tell me the risk there. What is your concern there? Uh, so many risks. The first and foremost is that these people are incarcerated for a particular reason. They've committed crime. And uh, so now with the addition of cell phones, they're able to continue their criminal activities on the streets. They're able to run their criminal organizations. They're able to communicate. And it takes away our ability to restrict their communication, um, to have intelligence if they are trying to communicate with people. And what's even more scary is it could be used to target victims that they have previously uh, victimized. What do you mean? Like they, they could sort of set up a, a hit on the outside or something? Not necessarily, well, potentially, but just more contact. Yeah. Like right yeah. now, if uh, 
these these inmates have to use the prison's uh, phone systems. Phone numbers have to be approved for them to contact them. And there's uh, a series of control measures we have in place using the prison phone system. Well, you give them a cell phone and it takes away all of our control to, to um, determine who they contact, when they contact them. Um, and like I say, a lot of them have no contact orders for a lot of victims. And with these cell phones, you know, then they could breach those no contact orders and we have no control. Speaking of John Randall, Union of Canadian Correctional Officers, we're talking about the epidemic of smuggling into BC prisons by by drone. I was talking to a former prison guard recently, John, who told me that one of his concerns with so many cell phones in prisons is that it increases the risk of escape by some prisoners. So, for example, let's say a prisoner has to leave the institution for a medical appointment or something like that. They might not normally get a lot of advance notice that they're leaving the prison to go see a doctor. But if they know, even on a short with short notice, and they can alert someone on the outside, hey, I'm going to be taken out of the prison today, I'll be at this doctor's office, does that create a risk of escape attempts or any other security concerns you may have? Definitely it does. Like that's yeah. one of the many ones. It, obviously that's a serious concern for the general public and our officers have been very, very diligent with that. They've been not only on high alert, but they've been very uh, cautious about ensuring that these appointments are, are not given too much notice for that exact reason. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. How about weapons? You mentioned that weapons are being smuggled in. What kind of weapons can be smuggled in by drone? Can they, can they smuggle in a, a handgun? We've had, Incidences where handguns have been reported being dropped by drones. Mission Institution wow. um, mission earlier this year had a lockdown because there was a suspected uh, a firearm drop in there. We never actually found anything, but uh, went through the entire process. And it, it is something that is now a reality for us. Right. And what other type of weapon? You could have like a knife, knives dropped in there, right? Like what else is coming in in terms of weapons? We're seeing a lot of knives. Uh, that's yeah. that's huge, and, and we're talking traditional like pocket knives as opposed to the old school prison uh, shanks. So we're now seeing traditional knives. The other thing that's scary is these hacksaw blades because you know those can do a ton of damage on the inside, uh, but for creating weapons, and and that's something that is ultimately for correctional officers and all staff in prisons very scary. Okay, let's. How can this be stopped? Let me let me play a clip here for you. Get your thoughts. So the this is Mistral Mayor, who is the uh, director of security operations for Correction Correction Services of Canada, and you'll hear her talk here about the about these uh, epidemic of drone drops in BC prisons. Here's what she had to say. Then I'll get your thoughts. We've seen a lot of successes across the country when it comes to uh, those more traditional methods of detection as well. Uh, some of the greatest successes that we've seen is by having staff be vigilant, uh, utilizing our intelligence program as well. Okay, so she says, well, prison staff just need to be vigilant. They're having a lot of success stopping these drones. You could use your intelligence network to stop. Like, what do you think about what you had to say there? Well, she's not wrong in the fact that officers and intelligence have been uh, doing an excellent job in, in detecting drones, spotting drones, and searching for the contraband. But the problem is, is we're A, we're short resourced, so that's a struggle on its own. And B, the technology, like we need to step up the technology that's introduced. Drones are advancing in technology. The inmates are um, getting more creative in how they're, the packages and what they look like when they drop them. And we can only see so many. And, and thing is is what we're reporting is only the ones we see and find whereas we have seen in the past when there have been these pilot drone detection systems in place we've had 
even more success in, in seeing the drones and stopping the drones. And not only that too, but then also working with our police agencies to arrest and, and uh, charge those people who are actually flying the drones. So yes, we're doing the best we can, but it's, it's a tough job. It's an added layer of risk and we're just undermanned right now. Okay, let's talk a little bit about how this can be stopped, John. And I've had a lot of listener emails on this, even this morning, saying, why couldn't they, well, for example, why couldn't you just string like a, some mesh, some meshing or a net over the prison yards to stop the drones from coming in? Coming in? Wouldn't that be a simple, simple solution? Yes, uh, for certain institutions, it would be 100% a simple solution. We've put that forward to CSC a number of times. And and it's like anything else, it's it's caught behind this red tape and this bureaucracy. Um, you know, we've heard things like we don't want to make we want to make sure that the prisoners don't feel like they're caged in. Um so, <laughs> you gotta be kidding me, man. Yeah, it's it's definitely a, a tough situation for us. Like I say, we put the netting thing forward. Now at some institutions, um, because of just the pure size of their sports fields, netting yeah. may not be um the best method at all of them, but yeah. for definitely some of them netting would work 100 percent why would they why would they be worried about the prisoners feeling like they're caged in i mean it's a jail it's a prison i don't uh, get that it's just uh the modern thing we have to deal with now we have to worry about human rights complaints and and, and human rights violations and it's another added layer on top of everything else there's so many um court decisions and uh, oversight groups that also have to have their input it makes it tough for not only us as officers but csc to immediately respond could they Another listener sent me an email and said there are drone like signal jamming technology you could set up. So you could set up some sort of signal jammer that would scramble the signal of a drone near a prison, sort of a technological solution. Is that is that possible? Have you heard of that? We have heard of that. And that's what we're pushing for. Um, okay. Again, we're stuck behind the government red tape and bureaucracy, right? Like we've had procurement projects in for almost six years now. and we're just not seeing uh, it happening quick enough. And it's all about procurement and testing and everything like that. But at some point, someone's got to step up and say, okay, we need these systems in place and we need them right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like pretty obvious. Now, what about detecting contraband in the jail once it has already been smuggled in? So let's say the drone drop is successful. Now you've got a cell phone, weapons, drugs in a jail. Are there what? How can you detect that once it's in there? I mean, aren't there like, aren't there drug sniffing dogs wandering around all the time looking for drugs? I was reading about a a cell phone sniffing dog. Like dogs could be trained to actually sniff out cell phones. Do you have any of those? We do. So in in the Pacific region here, we do have both. We have drug detector dogs, and then we have um, newly into our area here is the cell phone detecting dogs as well. And and they both are such an effective resource for us. But again. Um, we only have so many to cover all our federal institutions. And, and so we're short staffed. We need more of them. Um, there's also technology like sort of like metal detectors and, and whatnot that can detect different cell phone signals and different metals and whatnot. But again, it, it all comes down to uh, resource and time. Um, the, the best method for us is, is going back to what, what correction officers do and they do well, which is searching and, and, um, yeah. and pat downs and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and you mentioned that sometimes you guys, your people can detect these drones coming in. Like, do your people ever see one of these drones? I mean, they make a lot of noise too, right? You can hear them coming, can't you? Uh, for sure, you can hear the buzz above you. And yeah. in the last week, like say, we've 
uh, seeing a lot of them. And that's been what we've been doing is seeing a lot of the drones and then and then enacting our drone response plans to ensure that they don't get to drop their drones. So it's been effective, but like I said, it, it's it's very uh, labor intensive and and we just don't have the resources. It's it's becoming very tough. What what do you do when you see a drone or you hear one coming in? What what do you do to stop it? Well, each institution, again, depending on its layout and everything like that, has a drone response plan. So they'll immediately uh, enact that plan, whether it's locking the inmates down, deploying extra staff. There's a whole bunch of different options they do. But, um, you know, officers are extremely good at responding and catching them. That, and we're seeing a lot of success in doing that. What about the uh, what about the, the pigeons? I, I remember you telling me once about a, a pigeon like a passenger pigeon that came into a jail and it had a little backpack on it with, with drugs in it. You still yeah. seeing that? You still seeing any, any pigeons coming in with drugs? We haven't had any recent pigeon, uh, pigeon issues. Thank, uh, thank goodness. Yeah. Tell me about, t- tell me about that one again, will you, about the pigeon that had the drugs on it? Sure. It was, uh, there was a pigeon that had sort of a makeshift prison backpack and, uh, it turned out that inmates were managing to smuggle out prisons that were, or pigeons that were landing in the yards. And then they were, um, if you know how pigeons work, I had to do a lot of research, but if you feed them enough and they become comfortable with the food source, they're always going to come back. So they were tying these drugs to the prison or to the pigeon and they were landing in the prison yards with their backpacks of drugs. That, that's like old school. You don't need the pigeons anymore. You just use a drone, right? That, that's right. It was almost like, uh, you know, we were detecting so many drones, they, they changed up their methods. And that's the the evolution that we have to deal with is they'll go to drones and then they'll once we detect enough drones and start stopping them they'll go to another method and then they'll go back to drones so um it's it's extremely challenging john thank you for coming on to discuss this today i appreciate it thank you for having me All right, let's talk about the story that has rocked Sports Illustrated now, one of the oldest and most respected publications in sports journalism. Sports Illustrated caught using AI reporters. Yes, journalism done by artificial intelligence. I've got Maggie Harrison standing by, reporter at futurism.com. They broke this story Maggie's story here being followed by many other newsrooms now. Have a listen to this report. This is from CNBC News. A report published yesterday by Futurism called out Sports Illustrated for publishing articles from apparently non-existent authors with AI-generated headshots. Futurism provided evidence that the photos of several authors who were listed on Sports Illustrated's website were available for purchase on a website that sells AI-generated headshots. The photo in the bio of Drew Ortiz was available for purchase on a website with the description, neutral white young adult male with short brown hair and blue eyes. Another author bio, Sora Tanaka, also featured a headshot available for purchase on the AI website. All right. Incredible story. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Maggie Harrison, writer at Futurism.com. And I'm so glad she could join us. Maggie, thank you for coming on. First of all, congratulations on this story. I and mean, this is really sort of rocking the world there over at uh, Sports Illustrated. And we're seeing the fallout here now. Incredible work here. Uh, Maggie, let's talk about how you got onto this story. How, how, did you, how did you get into this one here now? So we do have some ongoing reporting. Um, so I do have to... Oh, also, thank you for having me. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, but uh, so I do have to play things um, a little bit, not close to the vest, but um, there are some things we can't speak on quite yet. Um, but... Essentially, there were some similar allegations of the use of fake authors um, 
to, you know, byline allegedly AI generated content at another um, company called Gannett. Those are never confirmed. Gannett denied it. Um, but we ended up kind of following the story from there and started just looking for a very similar thing, essentially. Um, you know, we've been following AI journalism and the, the impact of AI on the journalism industry and the media industry as a whole as, you know, a rep as a reporting body. Um, but the allegations, we've seen a lot of AI content, but the allegation of the use of AI in, in the writer realm was a very yeah. interesting and new allegation that we found very interesting. So um, we effectively, and I, I think it's useful to frame it that way because um, we were looking for it. And, and that's, I, I think it's useful because if I was an average consumer, I probably wouldn't have noticed that the byline had a fake face. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so we were looking for this very, a very particular, you know, incident or phenomenon of AI generated um, writers. Yeah, well, you sure found it because this story is is quite uh, quite stunning in a lot of ways. I'm taking a look at your work here and taking a look at this content that appeared on the Sports Illustrated website. You heard in that report they've got some content on there uh, allegedly by a journalist named Drew Ortiz, and taking a look at his photo, and even it's even got a biography here of the guy. So it says Drew. Uh, Drew grew up in a farmhouse surrounded by woods, fields, and a creek. He likes to go out camping, hiking, or just out uh, on his parents' farm. Got a, uh, an email address for the guy. So, Maggie, what, this guy doesn't exist? This is not real? No, Drew Ortiz is not real. Um, Drew yeah. Ortiz, yes, he's got a very robust bio. Um, he, yes, he grew up on the farm, allegedly. Yeah. Um, Surrounded by woods and can I believe the exact quote is um, can protect you from the perils of nature based on his, you know, life expertise of living on this farm and being in nature and knowing, you know, how what the best gear to have for, you know, whatever nature might throw your way. Um, but when we do, well, there, there are a few signs in the bio in the bio itself, like if you look at just the text, um, you know, it says a lot about why this guy must be so good at, you know, recommending these particular kinds of products. But when you look a little bit closer, there's not a ton of you know, more like substantive information. Like it doesn't really tell you where he grew up. It doesn't tell you, um, you know, his writing career, where he might've gone to school or if he didn't go to school, you know, what kind of like led him to the industry. Like there's a lot of more substantive, substantive details that are missing. Um, and then when we tried to trace his face back to see if we could find him anywhere else online, it took us to um, an AI, a marketplace for AI generated headshots. Um, where he was listed for sale as a neutral white male, et cetera. There, it was a much longer, <laughs> much longer uh, uh, title, but that those are the first couple words. Yeah. Of, you know, the, the face that was for sale. So, and I've never, I've never, I've yet to meet a person who has bought their face online. Yeah, no, this, this is incredible work you've done here. And since your story was published, uh, Sports Illustrated scrambling here to respond, and Sports Illustrated said that. This was content that they had purchased from a third-party company called Advon Commerce. So Sports Illustrated basically blaming someone else, a different company for this, and saying they've cut ties with this company now. Is this What is this Advon Commerce here, Maggie? What are they saying about this? So we, again, we have a lot of ongoing reporting um, happening right now related to Advon Commerce, um, but... Mm. Essentially, Advon and the Arena Group have defended. They've, they've essentially said, yeah, so this Sports Illustrated slash the Arena Group, because um, Advon was publishing content across the Arena Group at you know, another publication called The Street. Um, so it was more than one yes. under that media group's umbrella. Um, so they have essentially, yeah, so Arena Group 
said this, we bought it from Advon. Um, yes, I use pen names for writers, but um, there's no AI used in the actual text. Um, the, or, or Advon Commerce has held the same line of that. Yes, these are pen names for individual writers um, or pen names for writers, which is, it's still very confusing to me why somebody who is writing, um, you know, blog posts about volleyballs and fishing baits and other sorts of outdoor gear and sports gear would need to hide their identity for protection. Um, it it yeah. just doesn't, it's, it's a very strange um, kind of use of the word of the you know definition of pen name, but they have defended it under, you know, these were pen names, these were pseudonyms, um, nothing more. Yeah. That, that, and it does, boy, it doesn't really pass this, the smell test to me. Now we've seen that the, the CEO of arena group, which is the publisher of sports illustrated, fired maggie what's happening there are they saying that they, this guy was fired because of your reporting or are they blaming it on something else now they are not and i do think it is important to note so yeah they've hired i believe it's four executives now um previous week they'd fired um three top executives including their uh, i believe it was their um their highest legal person um in addition to the one of their presidents of content and their coo and then the following week yes ross levinson the former C now former ceo of um the arena group has been let go. They have maintained that these firings had nothing to do with the with, with our report, with the scandal. Um, they do have, and, and I do think it's important to frame Sports Illustrated in the sense of that this, if you look at the stock price of the arena group, it has been declining for quite some time. They, it's also mm. very difficult waters for the media industry in general. And we yeah. have seen a lot of AI efforts coupled with layoffs and general media industry strife. It seems like something that a lot of companies are turning to as sort of like a band-aid for a bullet wound of, you know, what what means are available to us to try and eke out, you know, that many more clicks, that many more eyeballs. Um, and so, yeah, they have said it has nothing to do with our reporting. Um, hmm. And I do think it's important to frame it in a sense of things haven't looked great for a while. Yeah. Well, Maggie, I have to congratulate you on this. this is terrific scoop. And uh, I thank you very much for coming on. The follow-up continuing on this story for sure. And I certainly appreciate your time today. Thanks for coming on today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Okay. I appreciate the time there from Maggie Harrison, the writer at futurism.com. This is the journalist who broke this story about the artificial intelligence reporters there on the website at Sports Illustrated. Now, Sports Illustrated blaming this on a third-party company, uh, saying that it was their fault. They have cut ties with that company. The CEO over there at Sports Illustrated has just been fired. Now, I got Andy Barrar standing by to talk about this. Have a listen to this here first now. This is Todd Spangler. He's the digital editor at Variety Magazine. And, you know, this is in some ways not surprising that this is what we're seeing now with the development of artificial intelligence. He talks here about the risk to media outlets on this. Have a listen. How can people be sure that they're not being fooled by AI-generated content? Yeah, no, you make a great point. It's about the trust that you have in a news brand. Um, and, you know, it really comes down to, you know, I think it's common sense, but you want truth in labeling. You want to tell your viewers and your readers exactly what you're presenting, the context in which it's being presented and how it's generated. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong per se with leveraging AI technologies to produce stuff, but you need to label it and you need to tell people 
where you got it and where it came from. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You need to disclose if this is going to be on the site. That certainly didn't happen at Sports Illustrated. Uh, this content here, this these reporters, the headshot, the biographies of these reporters, it all sort of looked real. It was certainly supposed to look real. I think it was designed to fool people. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Andy Barrar, tech and digital lifestyle expert. HandyAndyMedia.com is his website. Hey, Andy. Hi, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming out. What do you think of this here now? Boy, this is really rock Sports Illustrated. Your thoughts? Yeah, it's such a bad look. You know, you think about an iconic brand like Sports Illustrated, which, you know, for a writer, if you can get your byline on Sports Illustrated, that's a big deal. And so you yeah. have to have compassion for those writers when when that publisher in Sports Illustrated is starting to use AI content. You can only imagine how they feel. And as a writer myself, I'm Mike, I write in the tech industry. So if you think this is happening with Sports Illustrated, trust me, I'm having the exact same discussions with the editors for publications that I write uh, in the tech industry. Yeah, it's got to be tempting, I guess, for these websites and and other news outlets, right? Because they're all being stressed for money. They're all yeah. they're all feeling the budget crunch. And is this what is this what's driving it? I mean, this AI opt is just cheaper, isn't it, than hiring an actual human? Yeah. So here's basically how it works, especially on the web. When you create content, what what they're using AI for is to create SEO SEO friendly content. So keywords in that content, so that if you do an organic search that content comes up on Google. So basically mm. they needed writers to create this and they're like, make it SEO friendly, you know, use these keywords and you have to optimize it. So now they're just trying to get AI to do that, to cut the cost down. And I'll give you an example. There is one website, I won't name who, but that I write for. We already had a conversation where they want me to edit AI content. So they're oh. saying assisted by AI on the byline instead of my name. And so they're have, trying to have discussions with all of us about, you know, instead of just writing it, we just want you to make it sound more human, add some images, you know, and, and you know, puff it up and then publish it. And, I'm, you know, as a writer, I'm almost offended by it. But, you know, their, their logic is, well, everybody's using AI. And if you don't, you're going to lose out, especially in this economic time where a lot of these uh, companies aren't doing well financially and they're looking to yeah. cut costs. But what's the effect? The effect, and I'm trying to convince this with the editor that I'm having this conversation with. I'm actually going to meet him on Wednesday, trying to convince him to go for a beer so I could have this conversation. Being like, you're losing the reputation for, for the reader. Because yeah. if it says assisted by AI, how many people really want to read that content? Before that byline, you might like a certain writer and you're like, oh, I want to know his or her take on this issue, whether it's sports or tech. But once you have assisted by AI... As a reader, do you really want to read that content? And I would yeah. imagine most people, they wouldn't want to. Yeah, the, these are great points. Is it is it too late to put this genie back in the bottle here now? I mean, this AI is so powerful. It's only going to get more integrated into our lives, I think. And to some degree, we already use it every every day in journalism, don't you? I mean, if you're writing an article, if we're using spell check when you're writing something, I mean, that's that's artificial intelligence, basically, isn't it? So here's my opinion from the writer's side. And this is yeah. what I was trying to convince with this editor when I have this meeting. I'm like, give me the AI tools rather than you generate this, you know, with chat GPT-4 and then send it to me and humanize it. Just give me all the tools. Let me write and use AI. Now, if I just cut and paste and I try to publish it and I get caught like what happened with uh, Sports Illustrated, the onus is on the writer. 
So the writer has to know, just like if you're in university and you don't want to start plagiarizing, you have to learn how to write. Use it as a tool rather than just cut and paste or humanize it, say, assisted by AI. Because think about it. This is the worst AI is ever going to be. It is really like one year in into this AI discussion. So, you know, everybody is going to use AI, but they have to have a good policy and regulations so that you don't alienate the, the, the reader. Andy, thank you for coming on with your analysis on this today. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.